Hello, everybody. Um, we're just going to jump right into it. As, as you know, if you've been watching the last weeks that we've been in the in a series about the fruit of the spirit. So we went through love, joy, peace, and now we land today on talking about patience. And uh, it's something, uh, patience is a virtue, as they say. Um, as I was thinking about it this, this week, I was thinking about how we as Americans in 2021, we are used to having everything fast and now and right away. Uh, in the world that we live in of microwaves, movies on demand, live streaming, 3G, 4G, 5G, uh, high-speed internet, phones in our hands at all times, everything we like fast, fast food, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, the other day, my wife and I, we were at Baja Fresh and we, I was complaining. <laughs> I was not patient in the moment. I was hungry and I was, I was telling uh, my wife, Sonia, wow, things, uh, they're taking so long. And she pointed at a sign that was behind me and I looked behind me and the sign said something like this. Thank you for your patience. We don't cook food, we, or I'm sorry, we don't cook our food at the speed of microwave. And it was kind of ironic, kind of funny of how impatient I was at the time and how they had that on the wall. But it speaks to the fact, my impatience in that moment, that we want what we want and we want it now. So today we're going to talk about patience, but maybe not the typical way you might think I'm going to preach about it. I'm actually going to look at the book of Peter. We're going to open up. If you've got your word, uh, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be looking at 2 Peter, um, and we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 8 through 18. And what I want, what we're going to do today is we're going to learn from Peter, we'll learn from God's word, um, and we're going to look at how God has patience for us, just a little bit about that, and we're going to look deeper into how we are called to wait patiently for God. And I'll let that just sit with you for a second. You might not know exactly where I'm going with that, but you will understand as we move forward um, through the message. So like I said, 2 Peter 3, 8 through 18, I'm going to read from the NIV right now, New International Version. Peter writes to those who are listening, his audience, or reading, who are reading, and he says this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. 
Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forevermore. And everybody said, Amen. So it's a big passage, a big chunk of scripture, and there's a lot going on here, so let's unpack it. So to give a little context, this is 2 Peter. It's only three chapters long, and here Peter is warning his the recipients of his letter um, about false teachers and about false teachings. For one, he's telling them that the teachers are sinful in their lifestyle and that they're influencing other believers to sin and disbelief. And specifically, he's, he's confronting and warning them of false messages that are distorting the gospel of, the, of, of Christ, the message of Jesus, and denying Jesus's return. Literally, the teachers are saying Jesus isn't returning, and they're also twisting other truths about Christ. So their argument actually is, well, Jesus said he was coming back, and he's not. he has not yet, so therefore he is not, and they use that as their foundation for skewing the gospel and the message of Christ. So, these teachers, false teachers, were <clears throat> impatient in waiting for Christ, his return, and they were influencing others to be impatient. And this impatience was breeding doubt in themselves and those who they were they were uh, influencing, and they were causing people through their own behavior to live corrupt lives, to live sinful lives. So Peter is here encouraging believers to be on guard for these false teachers, and he's telling them and explaining to them how they are to live while they're waiting patiently for Jesus's return. And there's a lot we can learn from this passage as well. So let's dig in. Um, Peter's message, in light of these false teachers, one of the things he, he expresses to the readers, and of course to us as we open up 2 Peter 3 as well, is that God's timing is different than ours. So when we think about patience and waiting on God in our lives, we just need to understand God's timing is different. Uh, verse 8 clearly states that. When he says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. He's referencing Psalm 90, verse 4 here, but also just speaking to the reality that God lives on a different uh, a different playing field, if you will, a different realm where time is different for him. We can't fully understand that yet. Maybe we never will, or maybe we will in heaven. I'm not sure. But his timing, his, his understanding of timing is different than ours. 
And this is good for us to know when we are struggling to wait on him, to trust in him, to know his timing is better than ours. It's, it's different and better. The other thing that, that um, Peter is speaking to the readers as well, to the recipients of this letter, is that the Lord isn't slow. His timing is different, and verse 9 says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, listen here, he is patient with you. So when you think God is being slow in your life, being slow to make something happen, being slow to answer a prayer, God is not slow as we define slowness. He is wise, all-knowing, and he knows when the right timing is, and he is patient with you, patient with me, patient with all believers and non-believers, as we'll learn in a second. Verse 9 um, goes on and says, not only is the Lord not slow and that he's patient with you, but then it says this, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So in other words, Jesus has not yet returned, not because he's not going to, but rather because he loves believers and in this context, non-believers so much that he's willing to hold out as long as possible that as many people will come to him as possible. That in fact, he's, he desires that everyone, as we see in verse nine, would come to repentance. Jesus has not yet returned because of God's love and God's patience for the non-believers, that as many would come to know him. The, the picture of, for me that comes to my mind is the story of the prodigal son and the loving father. I think of God waiting at the, at the window with the door unlocked 24 hours a day, every day, just waiting for the prodigals to come home, waiting for those who have not yet received him to come home. He's waiting. He's willing to wait, and he's patient because he loves dearly his creation and every man, woman, and child in this world. He longs that they would come to a saving knowledge of him and come in and under his love and his into his fold. So there are some messages we can grab a hold from uh, of in this passage. One, that God loves non-believers um, more than we can understand and us, and that God's desires that all would come to know him. And if you're not a person who emphasizes evangelism, this passage should encourage you to believe that God it wants us to share the good news to the world around us that as many would come to know him. And again, God's another message here. Another thing we learn is that God's timing is best. He has his reasons for waiting whenever he's waiting for big or little things in our lives. We need to be patient and that we can trust him in his timing and find peace and patience while we wait for him to work or for him to come. Whatever you're waiting on, we can have patience trusting him in his knowledge, wisdom, his sovereignty, and his timing. So the false teacher said, 
Jesus is not coming. And Paul said, I'm sorry, Peter says he is coming and he's just waiting because he's patient on those who have not yet received him and received his gospel. But then Peter says, Jesus is coming. And he calls it the day of the Lord. And, and in this whole section, in, in this passage, he talks about using very strong wording, strong imagery of fire and destruction. But what, what he's doing is he's pulling from Old Testament imagery and Isaiah and, and um, Zephaniah and different Old Testament books. And he's highlighting not the annihilation and the destruction of the world, but rather the day of the Lord where Christ will come and will judge and will renew, will transform, will cleanse all of the earth. He will judge all of creation, all humans, all men, men, women, and child. He will judge them and he will transform, annihilate, get rid of, I should say, all evil from his uh, new heaven and new earth. And he will, he will, in cleansing the world, will create a new heaven and a new earth for those who have received him and have given their lives to him. But then verse 11 says, with all of that in mind, that God's one day, Jesus is coming, and he is going to judge, and he is going to cleanse and make all things new. With all that in mind, what kind of people ought you to be? Literally, that's a question that Peter offers in verse 11. In light of the day of the Lord, what kind of people ought you to be? What should you do? How should you live? This is what we have to ask ourselves. While we wait on the Lord patiently, trusting in him, what do we do? Well, this is what we do. According to this passage, we wait patiently. We trust in God and his timing. We also wait expectantly, and, be, and we wait in a way where we are prepared. Remember, verse 10 says this, the, the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So you need to be prepared. You need to live your life knowing that in any moment, literally right now, Christ could come back. Later tonight, Christ could come back. Tomorrow, next week, next month, we don't know. It'll be like a thief. It'll be all of a sudden when you don't expect it. We have to live our lives waiting expectantly and always prepared. And the text says we need to Wait expectantly, looking forward to that day, keeping our eye on the prize of the new heaven and the new earth, where God eradicates and gets rid of all evil from around us, where, God, where we experience God's presence, his peace, his joy, where we, we live under his reign fully and completely, where, like verse 13 says, where righteousness dwells, and where if we jump to Revelation 21, where we learn that there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more sickness, no more evil, no more sin, and where we don't have to watch our back while walking down the street. There's nothing to fear in the presence of God once Christ has come. 
and made all things new. So we look forward to that day and we prepare ourselves and we're ready for that. We also live, while we wait patiently, we live faithfully. Verses 11, 12, and 14 say this. It's, uh, Peter says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. Looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So we're not to live shameful, sinful lives. We're not, I'm not talking about living um, legalistically. I'm talking about living a life God has called us to, to please our Father, to be ready for his coming, to wait as he's called us to in a patient way, in a faithful way. Then we learn in this text that we are always to be on guard. It says in verse 17, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Be careful not to be pulled to the, pulled off of the path by people, even sometimes Christians, that, try, that influence you away from the Lord to stumble. This was a warning for Peter's audience, the, his recipients of his letter, and it's a warning for you and for me today. Because false teachings and, and false teachers and people who lead Christians astray are not unique to the first century. They have existed ever since, and they exist today. So as I was thinking about this type of patience, faithfully being patient for God, um, that we are called to being on guard and, and waiting expectantly and, and prepared for our Lord's coming, it reminded me of a, of a parallel concept. Um, basically this, that us waiting for God it's similar to when parents leave their kids at home. Now, mind you, God has not left us. He is in us. He is with us at all times. But let's be real. Sometimes we live our lives as if God's not around, as if God the Father left the house or left us alone as his children, and we're going to do what we want to do. So it, it, it reminded me of a couple of stories. Uh, one was of myself and my younger sister, two years younger than me, uh, Tia. So we grew up with uh, being raised primarily by my father, who was a single father. And he would, as all parents do at, at a certain age, started leaving myself and my sister alone at the house. And I remember one day he went off. I don't remember where he went, but my sister and I were at the house and we, of course, got bored, as kids do, and um, started getting into a little mischief. We, we decided, we didn't, I don't think we thought it was mischief at first, but sometimes you don't think it is at first, and you kind of slowly fall into mischief. So we grabbed the, bo the box of Bisquick out of the, the um, cupboard, and we thought, hey, let's make some of our own Play-Doh. And we poured it on the, the um countertop in the kitchen and we made some poured, put some water in it and we made our own play-doh and we were doing whatever we were doing with it and all of a sudden I don't know who did it first I'm going to blame my sister Tia 
for this one, just just to just because I can. I'm the one talking right now. But one of us took it and we threw it up on the ceiling. And what was fascinating to us was that it stuck to the ceiling and it wasn't coming down. So what what does a kid do after that happens? Well, they grab another clump of bisquick and throw it up on the wall, on the ceiling. So by the end, we had numerous globs of bisquick stuck to the ceiling. Um, we left it there because we couldn't get up to clean it. And surprisingly, my dad walked by it day after day. I want to say for weeks. I'm not, I don't remember how long. But one day he saw it and he was not a happy camper. Um, part of the reason was it had been so long that the Bisquick turned into what was basically concrete and it took him forever to get it off. So that was a story where my sister and I stumbled into some mischief while dad, well, well father, if you will, was, a, was, was out of the house, left us waiting. We got impatient and got into some mischief. Now, another story I want to share with you is about my wife and her siblings. <clears throat> so on this particular Saturday, when she was growing up, uh, Sonia was in charge of the kids and they were supposed to uh, clean the whole house while their dad was gone at work. <clears throat> and they were not to watch TV. And guess what they did? They didn't do their chores and they watched TV all day, all day. But they knew that dad, when he would walk in, he would put his hand on top of the TV to feel if it was warm. So they immediately, they heard dad coming. So they got up and everybody, Sonia probably told them, everybody get to work, act like he's not, like we weren't watching TV. They turned the TV off and dad walks in and he, he, he probably would have walked over and touched the, the TV to check it, but he didn't have to because the youngest sibling, JC, said, Daddy, we didn't watch the TV. <laughs> so he knew exactly that they watched television and probably touched the TV and felt it and realized that they had watched TV. Now, these are, are funny stories. I hope you got a laugh out of them as, as much as I did at least. Um, and we all have them, either of our own experiences growing up or friends or, or, or our children's or grandchildren, something that'll stir up a laugh of, of kids misbehaving in one way or another that we can later look at it and laugh. But I was thinking about it and how our Christian walk is so similar to children when their parents are away. Because we act like a kid at home while their father's away. Like, as I said earlier, like God is nowhere, nowhere around. He has left us and, and we're, we can do what we want. We can get into a little mischief or, or not do our chores, uh, as not do the things he's called us to do. But like I said, God is not only with us, but in us. He, the spirit of, his, of our father, of our God, of, our, of Jesus abides in us. So he's not away, but nonetheless, we act like it. And as we act like it, I was thinking about it, 
And there's two very uh, insidious trends, very dangerous trends in the in lives of Christians, in the body of Christ that we see in the church today. And I'll say this, there's actually many that I could bring up, but I'm going to talk about just two today. And as Peter warned his audience, his recipients of the letter, of things that they needed to be careful about not doing, pitfalls of the Christian life, I want to do the same for you right now. I want to warn you and challenge you, confront you if you're doing these things. So ready your heart to experience maybe a little uncomfortableness, just as I had to experience this week, as I, as God worked in me in, in coming up with this message. So first of all, the warning, the, the, the challenge that I want to offer you and for you to be careful about is this, that there are two pitfalls that Christians can fall into, again, that I want to talk to you about. The first one is more obvious. It's, if I could draw this parallel, it's not a perfect parallel, but it's like my sister and me at our house getting, stumbling into mischief while our father was away. Like I said, we as Christians, sometimes because we don't see God here with us physically, we, we, it feels like he's out, like he's, like he's gone, like a father left the house, and we start acting impatiently. And like my sister and me, we start dabbling. Sometimes we don't even mean to at first, but we start dabbling into mischief, into sin. And eventually we start walking in sin becomes a, a lifestyle where we we are just living in that sin weekly or even daily or even throughout the day and there's countless sins so if if you're doing that now you know that i'm talking to you and here's the problem though some people they justify this lifestyle of mischief mischievousness of mischief of 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 sin of living a lifestyle of sin by saying this well, it doesn't hurt others. It's just my thing between me and God. Or they say, well, they justify it by saying, well, other Christians do this very same thing I do. I know, I know multiple, so therefore it's okay. It's not like unique to me. Or the worst, <laughs> the one that makes me kind of frustrated and sad, though I am not above this either, is this. To justify our sin by saying, well, God forgives me. Jesus is my Savior. I'm going to heaven anyway. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever heard somebody say that or, or live their life like that? Or have you or are you living like that right now? Here's the thing. Those living in sin, often Christians, that is, or people that call themselves Christians, because not all, everybody who calls themselves a Christian is a true follower of Christ. Many Christians highlight Jesus as their Savior. They exalt him as the one that's going to get them a ticket into heaven. While they don't treat him as their Lord and their God, the one who, who they bow to. They exalt him as Savior and forget about him as their Lord. 
And what does the Bible say? We're going to turn to Paul in, in uh, Romans 6.6. 6. He says this about a lifestyle of living in sin as a Christian. He says this. And let, let me clarify. I'm not talking about stumbling into sin and, and, and repenting and moving on. We all do that. That's part of the Christian life. I'm talking about people that are, are dabbling in sin regularly and, and, and justifying it and, and living in that rhythm of sin in their life. And this is what the Bible says. This is what Paul says in Romans 6, 6. He says, well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? He says, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how, how can we continue to live in it? Believers who are living week after week lifestyles of sin and saying, well, I'm getting to heaven anyways, we call that cheap grace, where they are receiving God's salvation and grace without treating him as Lord, as God, and humbling themselves before them and following God and his lead and his will for their lives. One more verse I'm going to throw at you in regards to this. Hebrews 6.6. 6. <clears throat> it talks about what we are doing to God when we choose to live a lifestyle of sin. It says this, Hebrews 6.6. 6. By rejecting the Son of God through your, through your actions as a Christian, by rejecting the Son of God through sin, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up, Jesus, up to public shame. Those of us who live lifestyles of sin as Christians, are it's as if we are nailing Jesus to the cross ourselves through our actions and shaming him to, in our own lives and to the world around us. If that doesn't penetrate your spirit to want to repent right now and give God your life as a believer, I don't know what else will. On top of all of that, if that wasn't enough, if you're walking in sin, living in sin as a Christian, just like those false teachers that Peter warned his recipients of the, his letter about, they persuaded others to walk in the same sin that they were doing. And whether you know it or not, if you're living in sin, you are influencing others around you negatively. And you are not, even if you are trying to, you're not going to push forward the mission of God and bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, as we are called to do. You're, we're living in sin. We're influencing those around us, friends, family, even non-believers, to walk in sin as they see us living in that sin. And our our. Christian influence, our Christian walk 
testimony to the world around us and those we know and love even around us is tarnished. If that is you, I encourage you, repent and choose to crawl out of that pitfall, if you will, of sin in your life. Repent, draw close to God, get back into church and, and get away from that sin. Run from that sin. Flee from it. Have nothing to do with it. So I said we, I was going to warn you about two things. The second pitfall that Christians very often fall into nowadays, and it's less noticeable, and that we can get away with more easily, is more similar to Sonia and her brothers. If I can draw that, it, it's not a perfect parallel, but if I can connect it to that. In other words, the father has told them what to do, has given them their assignment, given them all the equipment they need to do their chores and told them what to do and told them what not to do. And as he, as he wasn't there, as they were waiting for him, they decided to sit down and not do their chores. And that's another insidious, dangerous thing that's going on in our church right now. Dangerous for the kingdom of God, dangerous for the mission of God, dangerous for the church, the body of Christ. And that is believers who are sitting down on the job. Believers who, though God has given them giftings, God has given maybe even a vision for what he wants them to do in life, and they have decided that while they're waiting on the Lord, they're not, they're going to act like he's not coming back for a long time and just sit on their hands, watch TV, and not do anything in his name. These are people that, Christians that don't go to church, but these are also Christians that sit in the pew every Sunday. It happens all over. In fact, probably every church, the majority of people do little to nothing. Let's be honest. And what do we justify? How do we justify it? Well, I, I, I'm not living in sin, right? I'm not doing any overt, you know, I'm not cussing. I'm not I'm not looking at things on TV I should not look at. I am trying not to gossip. I'm okay, but it's the Christian walk is not all about what we're not supposed to do, not doing what we're not supposed to do. There's a whole huge section of what God's called us to do and expects us to do. And if the church is not doing what they're called to do, then how are we going to fulfill the mission he has given us on earth? Those who, who live like this, and, and let me say, I'm not putting myself high and mighty here. I, 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 God is preaching to me this whole message to me as well. But I want to say this, that those who fall into this category, they're disregarding what God has asked us to do to be his hands to the world around us, his heart his feet, his, to be light in the darkness, to be salt in the world, and to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 
maybe you'll remember the, the parable of the talents. It's in Matthew 25, where Jesus is offering this parable as a teaching, and he says, the master left. The owner of this, this, this wealthy owner of property left to go on a journey, and he left three servants, and he gave each of them a certain amount of money that, that equaled or that was true to their talent, their ability, their giftings. And two of them did well with what he had given them, and they made even more money for him. And the, other, the third one, though, not so much. The third one sat on his hands. I'm going to, this is my addition, watched TV, if you will, got lazy. In fact, the uh, scripture says, I believe, slothful, and did nothing with that which the master gave the servant. In fact, the servant went and hid it, buried it, and when the, the master came back, the servant gave the, gave the master that one little bit of that little bit of money that was given to him, that one talent, as they as it says. And let's just say the master was not impressed, not at all. The master was angry. He expected much more from his servant than burying, hiding the, the, the money he had given him and doing nothing. And here's the reality. Many of us are doing the same as that servant, that third servant, doing nothing. We're sitting on our hands. We've, we have all these giftings God has given us, these abilities, these things that we can invest into the kingdom. But what are we doing? We're burying them and not using them at all. God doesn't like that. God has called you and me to so much more than that. He longs that we would, we would step up to his calling in our lives. And the truth is, if you did so, you would be so much more filled with joy in this life, walking in the calling he has given you. Rather than, as we, so many of us do, sit on our hands or push the limits with sin and hurt our walk and hurt those around us by drawing them into the same sin that we're getting into. So like I said, God has so much more for us. He wants us, while we wait in the, in the, in the interim between Christ's uh, first coming and, and victory over evil to his second coming where he will eradicate all evil and make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth. We sit in the middle of that experience and we are to wait patiently in faith and be faithful while we wait for him. We are to be actively heeding his instructions in our life, listening to the words of Jesus, listening to what the God has to tell us in his word. And what is that? For one, to live every day of our life as if Jesus is going to return today. Now, think about it. If, I, if my sister and I would have known my dad was coming when we were making those Bisquick Play-Doh pies, whatever they were, we would have washed up quick and got, 
we would never have done it if we thought he was coming back quick. Or Sonia and her brothers would have never watched TV if they thought he was coming back immediately. We need to live like Christ is coming back today, coming back now. And to live as the passage, as Peter encourages us to, encourages us to do in verse 11, to live holy and godly. Or in verse 14, to live blameless and at peace with our God, with Jesus. As I said already, we are to live in a manner that beckons or that, that brings God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And in addition to praying for it, as we do in the Lord's prayer, we live it. We live it through the gifts he's given us. Also in Matthew 6, 33, we, we know that we are to seek him first in our lives every day, his kingdom and his righteousness. In Mark 12, 30, we, are to, we, we know we are to love our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all of our strength, with our whole being, we are to love him as if he is coming back in the next minute. That's how much we are to love him. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And as we read, and, and, and I'm not going to have a time to go deep into this, but read Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And you'll know that, that it's not just pastors and, and missionaries and, and teachers and apostles that are the ones who are supposed to minister. We are all given gifts, and we are all called to use our gifts and our talents to build up the church, the, the body of Christ, for the mission that God's given us to, for his kingdom purposes he knows all of them. One of them is to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And according to our passage here in 2 Peter, that as many people would come to a saving knowledge of Christ, which leads me to Mark 16 and Matthew 28, that we are to go while we're waiting patiently, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that Jesus has taught us. We are to make disciples. This, these are the ways that represent how we are to wait patiently for the Lord as if he's coming back today. And this Hear me clearly, this is also how one day when we stand before Christ and all of our, all of the junk of our life is burned away, that we still have something left to give back as, as the, as the uh, servants did to their, to their master, where we will hear him say, if we live patiently and faithfully, well done, my good and faithful servant enter come and enter into the joy of your master may we live our lives as if he's coming today later today and may we live patiently faithfully hopefully looking to the future and living 
out the calling he has in our life and not falling into the pitfalls of sinfulness, mischievousness, and apathy. Let's pray. Father God, I long for you to touch each of us who listens to this message, to transform us. If there is sin in our lives that you will convict us right now and reveal it to us. If, if our sin is not overt sin, but apathy, not doing our chores, if you will, God, not doing what you've called us to do, then rise up in us and, and convict us, encourage us, Lord, and give us the strength and the faith and the stamina to do all that you've called us to do. Lord, we thank you that you allow us to be part of your mission on earth. Give us clarity for the vision that you have for us. Give us clarity about the giftings we have and how you want us to use them. And I pray that you will call your children in every church out of, around the whole world, including in Joy Christian Center, our church, that you would rise up leaders, rise up everybody that sits in the pews and even those who have not yet come. Invite them in, Lord, and may we all rise up into the giftings you've given us to use them for the building up of your church that we may overflow your love into the world around us and that more and more would be captivated by your love and drawn into your kingdom for your kingdom and your love's sake, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, we trust in you and we pray for every day for more patience that we may live faithfully and patiently for you in our lives. Lead us not into temptation, Lord, but deliver us from all evil and those temptations that try to draw us away from waiting patiently and faithfully and actively living forth your kingdom purposes. We pray all of this in the mighty and powerful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus and in the power of the spirit that abides within us. We bow to you, holy God. We thank you that you are our father. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Go forth, patient in the Lord, walking in the power of his spirit and in the calling that he has given you and the giftings he has empowered you to live in. Until next time, may God bless you. Bye for now.